would take your Bibles this morning and return with me over to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. With all the things, the crazy things going on in our society right now, I thought this would be an appropriate passage for us to turn to this morning. And notice, if you will, it's the passage we read in your hearing just a few moments ago that in the middle of all this, here is what Jesus Christ said to his disciples in the storm. And let's see if I can, there we go. Okay, Matthew chapter 14, notice if you will, verse 27. Straightway or immediately, Jesus spoke unto them saying, be of good cheer. It's another way of saying, be of good courage. It is I, be not afraid. Shall we pray together? Thank you, Father, for the opportunity this morning to exalt you with your words and most especially to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, that we would get a new grasp, a new understanding of exactly how you discipled your disciples, how you led them, how you helped them to understand and communicate to them that they needed to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which they had heard of him among many witnesses, the same to commit to faithful men. Father, help us today then, longing as we are to be your disciples, longing as we are to follow you. I pray that you give every one of us the willingness that if we desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Father, by your Spirit today, would you work in us and through us in this service and grant us a new understanding, a new unveiling, a new illumination about our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sea of Galilee is known for its sudden, life-threatening storms. That really plays into today's story because these businessmen that we call fishermen, they made their living. This was their occupation to be out on the Sea of Galilee. So they basically knew everything they needed to know to make a living and conduct their business and provide for their families out on the Sea of Galilee. And we know that as we look at this large freshwater lake, we know that there's some unusual things going on. Now, just like we say today, you get up in the morning and you look out toward the east and you see a red sky and you remember that the sailors would say, red sky at morning, sailors take warning. And then when you look toward the west in the evening, red sky at night, sailors delight. That that's the way that the mariners across the years communicated to each other. Here's what you see. And Jesus even pointed to that very phenomenon. It's there listed in your manuscript in Matthew chapter 16. For those of you watching online this morning, the manuscript is there on the sermons page. Jesus basically said the same thing in Matthew chapter 16 that we say about red sky at morning and red sky at night. But there's something unusual going on in the Sea of Galilee. In the Sunday school lesson this past Sunday, if you were in the Psalms of Ascent, one of the things we pointed out is that Mount Hermon, they say over there, Mount Hermon, which is far to the north, about 43 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee, Mount Hermon is actually about a 28-mile-long ridge, and many places it rises to more than 9,000 feet. It's been said about Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, that it makes its own weather. And there's good reason for that, that it makes its own weather. Because what you have is this warm, moist air that's coming off of the Mediterranean. 
And there on top of Mount Hermon, you have almost continual rain and snow. Even during the summertime when you go there, you can see the snow-capped peaks. So this morning, as we talk about this just a little bit, let's kind of draw it out in our minds, shall we? When you think about the Sea of Galilee, let's just make the bevel right here on our steps. Let's say that the Sea of Galilee would be here. And you know enough about your Bible geography to know that the Jordan River, and it goes back and forth down to the Dead Sea, down about 70 miles down to the Dead Sea. Here you have the Sea of Galilee. As I say, 43 miles to the north, you would have Mount Hermon. Down on the Dead Sea, it's the lowest, one of the lowest places on earth. By the way, I was stunned to find this out just the last couple of days. They found a lake that was lower than the Dead Sea. And I thought, I hadn't even heard of this. Where is this? It's, you can't go there. It's under the ice. They found it in 1996 in Antarctica. It's called Lake Vostok, I assume, after the man who discovered it there. And apparently that has not been visited in thousands of years. By the way, someone that I have been witnessing to for a couple of years specifically raised this in the last couple of days and showed tremendous openness when he realized how much there was that was under the ice. And he was asking questions such as, how could those mammoths be flash frozen like that? And I began to talk to him about what the Bible said about the Genesis flood. So there's all kinds of interesting illustrations that are coming out of that. So here, as we would say it, in the Great Rift, which goes all the way from the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, goes all the way down and actually goes across the Red Sea and down into eastern Africa to what is known as the Great Lakes region of East Africa. This would be Lake uh, Tanganyika and other, other lakes. Lake Victoria would be in that same. That's this Great Rift that is going all the way down. Well, Both the Sea of Galilee, which is the third lowest lake on earth, it's at 704 feet below sea level, going all the way down to the Dead Sea. And as you can see in your notes, that's even much deeper than that. So the rift is going like this. What is it that is happening here on the Sea of Galilee that kind of makes its own weather or it comes up with its own weather? And here's one of the things that's going on. The Sea of Galilee at its uh, maximum is only about 200 feet deep. By the way, that's just like Lake Erie up here to our north, just over 200 200 feet deep. And what that means is it's a relatively shallow lake, but here's the kicker. It is surrounded by these mountains and hills. It is surrounded by not only Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, all the way up there, Uh, above 9,000 feet, 28-mile-long ridge. From there, it slopes down to the Sea of Galilee. And you can look at this on your Bible maps, and you can see the way it is placed right there. You have the Safed Mountains. Safed is the highest city in Israel. It's at 3,000 feet. And you have these other areas where they gently slope down. You have Mount Arbel, and many of you who are going to Israel have been, if you've been to Israel, you've been there, or you're going there to Mount Arbel. But then if you look at your map that's in the back of your Bible, you will see that the Sea of Galilee also has the Judean hills. If we made the baptistry, the Mediterranean this morning, then the way you could picture it in your minds is going up from the Sea of Galilee out here into the Judean hills, Right here at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee, if you went 
due west from there. You would come to Nazareth, Sepphoris, just to the north of that. You would come to Nazareth there, and you can see these Judean hills going all the way up. And if you went all the way out to the Mediterranean, you would see that there is Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, the highest mountain in that area that actually blocks the way so that people can't go through there. And that's where you come to Megiddo and Jachnium and some of the other places. So the point being this, that here's the Sea of Galilee at 704 feet below sea level, going all the way down to the Dead Sea, 1,412 feet below sea level, that around the Sea of Galilee, you have these mountains and you have these hills. Picture this, if Lake Erie were surrounded by mountains and hills like that, we'd have exactly the same kind of weather there. You say, now why would that be? Because at those, those heights, you have changes in temperature. And as the cooler air comes cascading down those mountains and hills, it rushes rather violently right out onto the Sea of Galilee. So you would think, hey, these were businessmen. These were fishermen. I mean, they should have certainly understood the weather. The weather is so unpredictable on the Sea of Galilee that they couldn't have predicted it. Good weathermen have a hard time even today. I think what they probably have to do is monitor the temperature changes on the surface of Mount Hermon and the other places like that to try to figure out what's going to happen because all this cool air comes rushing down almost from every side, rushing down on. You know that if you went to Mount Carmel and you would come down through the valley that is commonly called the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel, Valley of Esdraelon, all that cool air would come rushing down on and that's what the phenomenon is. When you look at today's story and you ask, how is this actually happening? Here's why it happened. So there's the geographical setting, if you will, behind today's message as you look at it. Let's go into the story and think about, here is Mount Hermon, as you can see there on the slides, to the far north. You can see the snow-capped areas. They say that, that it's mainly made out of limestone. You have these uh, what are called karst, K-A-R-S-T-S. They're like reservoirs that are down inside the limestone that collect the water. And this, is a, this produces a well-watered plain down below there, the headwaters of the Jordan River and uh, the area around Dan. You have then the Dead Sea, which would be, as I say here, down to the south, and you have it at 1,412 feet below sea level. And then you have the one that we're going to look at today, the Sea of Galilee. Can you see on that slide, if you look really carefully off in the distance, can you see those high mountains that are kind of off in the distance? Those really play in. That's the central factor that you see in today's message of what's happening here. What is Jesus doing in this passage? Well, here Jesus is demonstrating to us that he is our guide. Aren't you grateful today that God is your guide, and especially in the person of Jesus Christ, you have the guide that he is? Whatever it is that you are going through, whatever the difficulties you are facing right now, Jesus offers himself as your guide and as my guide. And when you look at these storms and the kind of the whirlwind that's going all around, are you going through a financial storm today? Are you going through a family storm today? Are you going through a storm in your physical body like Randy would be going through this morning? Are you going through something where you just feel like, boy, I, I am in the midst of a whirlwind. It is just kind of whirling around me. 
There are those of you in this room who have stood at the bedside of a loved one who is passing away, someone who is very, very precious to you. And you've wrestled with that. And in that moment, you find your thoughts are just swirling around. When you think about that, when you think about that swirling all around, think about this passage. I believe it's the very reason that we find it in the Word of God. Notice then in verse 22, there are reminders here about what we can learn about Jesus and what we can learn about ourselves in the midst of the storm. Look at what it says in verse 22. And straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into the ship. Isn't that interesting? He didn't just say, oh, if you want to. No, he actually constrained them. He compelled them to get into that boat. You say, but wait, that boat is going into the middle of a storm. Jesus is well aware of that. He knows exactly what he's doing here. Having just fed these 5,000 men, plus women and children, demonstrating his glory to his disciples, as John says in 1 John, they were eyewitnesses of his glory. Having introduced himself as the one who is the provider and would provide for them, he is now going to reintroduce himself in a way that is not routine. In fact, it is highly, highly unusual But nevertheless, so that they can see the glory of God, he is going to help them recognize that he is not only the God who sustains us with food so that we can pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, and he will. He's not only the God who sustains us, he's also the God of the storms. Look at verse 22 again. And straightway or immediately, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitude away. What's the first reminder here this morning for your survival guide? Well, here it is. Remember that Jesus sent you into the storm. Jesus sent you into the storm. You must recognize this morning, you and I must grasp this, that we as believers, Christ's disciples, we have the confidence of being called We have the security of being sent. We have the confidence of being called. We have the security of being sent into whatever storms it is that we face. And here he is. He is sending them out onto the lake. So when you face your own storms, remember that Christ calls you, that the Savior sent you, and that really your Bible is full of stories about how saints faced the storms. For those of you who are working through your Bible reading right now, again, I want to express my appreciation to Pastor Rod for that Bible reading schedule. I have really treasured the things that I'm finding there. When Joseph unveils his identity to his brothers, that's one of the most dramatic stories anywhere in the Word of God. He introduces, reintroduces himself to them. It's one of the most dramatic scenes because In Genesis chapter 37, his hard-hearted brothers had sold him into slavery. If you want to turn over there this morning, we're going to look at Genesis 45 in just a moment. But think about what's happening here. Genesis 37, his hard-hearted brothers sold him into slavery. 
Genesis chapter 39, he's a slave in Egypt doing well in his master's house. And what happens to him? He is falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar. It's the classic he said, she said situation. You say, how's he ever going to survive that? Read Genesis 39, read it carefully, and here's what you find out. You find that the Lord was with Joseph. And you find out that whatever Joseph did, the Lord caused it to prosper. Now wait, can you say that about yourself like Joseph did? Well, if you go to Psalm 1, here's what you find out. The one who meditates day and night in the word of God shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season and whatsoever he does shall prosper. That was applied specifically even to Joshua, Joshua chapter one, where the Lord kept saying, be strong and very courageous. And then he told Joshua how to be strong and very courageous. And lo and behold, it's the same answer. It is meditating in the word of God and putting the word of God into practice. So to broadcast his life message at one point, Joseph named his two sons. Remember he named them Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means God has made me to forget all my toil and all my father's house. He named his second son Ephraim. And he was, he was giving him that name Ephraim, just like he gave the name Manasseh. He was giving him to, to communicate something to future generations. What was it he was communicating by choosing the name Ephraim? Catch these words. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In the land of my affliction. In other words, in the very same place that you go through your storms, When you go through your anxieties, you go through your afflictions, in the land of his affliction, Joseph said, God has made me to be fruitful. So how does he wind this down? Look at uh, Genesis 45, if you will. It's there in your manuscript as well. When Joseph told his brothers who he was, that had to be shocking and stunning, and they realized what they had done. Listen to the very first thing that Joseph says. He says, now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves. Okay, picture this just for a moment. Here's the other brothers, and they had a big fight, and they were frustrated. They were angry with each other. You can read the stories in between and find out. Reuben said, didn't I tell you? I mean, this is what's happened. And so the frustration and anger between all of them, here's what Joseph says. He says, don't be angry. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here Why not, Joseph, for God did send me before you to preserve life. You can well imagine their astonishment when they face this. But Joseph goes on. Look, if you will, down to verses 7 and 8. He said, and God sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So catch this. So now it was not you that sent me here, but God. Folks, stop to think about the amazing overarching providence of God that Joseph understood. This is truly remarkable. Where he had been deceived, he had been slandered, he had been sold into slavery, they lied to his father. And he goes through all of these other things that go through. And you know what Joseph says? Joseph said, it was God who was in this. It was God who sent me into this. Look, if you believe that, just as surely as those disciples are out on this sea, out in the middle of this storm, 
If you really believe that, that God, the God who loves you, the God who is in control of all things, if he's the one that sent you into that storm, then can you see how your trust would be in the Lord and you would be resting in him? Joseph, when he's expressing this to them, he says, you, you, know, you have to know it was not you that sent me here, but God. How did he get sent there? They sold him into slavery. But he says, but it was the Lord who sent me there. And he says, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over all his house. As you try to remember, as you try to think through what it must have been like, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was 17 years of age and finally came into ascendancy as second in command under Pharaoh when he was 30 years of age. Think about the 13 years in between. What is going through this young man's mind? And my answer to that is what his father said back in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 3, because Jacob said to his family, let us arise and go to Bethel for, and, and to make an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me wherever I went. Now, I just asked you to picture this a moment ago as the baptistry is being the Mediterranean. There is what is known as the way of the sea or the Via Maris that goes down there. Here he is. He's in shackles. He's in irons. His brothers have betrayed him. They wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. What is that young man thinking with every clank of the chain as he is walking along? Here's what I think he's thinking. Here's what my dad told me. Jacob told me, God answered me in the day of my distress, and he was with me wherever I went. Can you see how that would transform your attitude as you trust in the Lord and remember him? The first thing we understand here is that the saints have the security of being sent. Jesus sends us into the storms. But look, if you will, at verses 23 and 24 in, back in Matthew chapter 14. And when he had sent the multitudes away, this is Jesus, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves, for the wind was contrary. What do you think Jesus was praying for his disciples that are down on the Sea of Galilee, buffeted, their boat being buffeted by the waves, what do you think he's praying for them? I think he's praying for their perseverance and for their constancy, for their patience. And this really brings us to the second reminder. Remember that Jesus is praying for you in the storm. This comes out very prominently in the Word of God. Romans chapter 8, also I listed there in the notes for you, over in Hebrews chapter 7. Even this very moment, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, he is before the throne of God the Father and he is interceding for every believer under the sound of my voice and all the rest of the believers too. Even now he is interceding for us. You say, I wonder what he's praying for me. Probably the easiest answer for that would be go back and read John chapter 17 after he tells us about the Holy Spirit, especially in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, go read what is often called his high priestly prayer in John 17, and then you will know how he is praying for us. He is praying that we would all be one and many other fine prayer requests that you and I would do well to learn. 
It tells us in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus Christ is even now interceding for us. Paul wrote this to the congregation that was there at Rome in Romans 8.34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You say, well, that was wonderful in the New Testament. How about now? Well, you go to Hebrews chapter 7, and here's what it says about our great high priest. When he, sorry, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. That is a fascinating expression, by the way, in the original language. And it means as far and as long as you can possibly conceive all the way into eternity and beyond. I mean, he's saying save to the uttermost. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Catch this. Seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. Look. Whatever storm you are going through right now, whatever it is that is swirling around you, this much know Jesus Christ is even now interceding for you. He is interceding before the throne of grace that you would be patient, that you would be constant, that you would persevere in the midst of all that. Isn't it wonderful to know, first of all, that Jesus sends you into the storms And secondly, that he is praying for you in the storms. Many of you in this congregation will remember this. You remember a time, not that many years ago, when our Christian school was on the front page of newspapers all around the world. And oh my, the comments that were being made, how our school leaders were being accused and lied about, things that we knew were untrue. But just imagine this worldwide storm. Our missionaries wrote to us and said, do you realize you're on the front page of the newspaper all the way over here? We said, we we get it. And there's this worldwide swirling and storm. And here's what people predicted. They predicted, well, that'll be the end of that Christian school. Hey, how's that working out? Our Christian school is growing and flourishing. It is still going on. And here's what that helped people to recognize that the wagging tongues and the flashing pens and all the things that people were using with the World Wide Web, that it was really powerless. That when faced with the power of God, those wagging tongues and all those comments actually turned out to be powerless because here's what happened. Faithful people just made up their minds, hey, we're going to press on. And loyal parents, they just pressed on. And here's what you begin to realize when you study the Word of God. This is going on all the time in the scriptures. I listed for you there what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, being defamed, we entreat or or appeal. Catch this. While he is being denounced and defamed, insulted, and all kind of things. are. You know what the apostle Paul said? Being defamed, we appeal. Being defamed, we entreat. He said, we are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Imagine what it was like to be the Apostle Paul. Imagine for him to be treated. This is the Apostle Paul, God's sent messenger, and he is treated like the off-scouring, the terrible stuff of the world, the garbage, if you will. And what did he say? He said, being defamed, we appeal. He pressed on. Our Christian school pressed on. It flourished. Remember this, Jesus is our great high priest. He is our great intercessor, and he is praying for us in the storm. Look at verses 25 and 26. 
And in the fourth watch of the night, here's what they tell us uh, from studies of the time, somewhere between 3 a.m. and and 6 a.m. You've been out camping and you just see that that very faint glow on the horizon because you can tell the dawn is coming, even if it's a rainy and overcast day. It was in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. Wow. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, by the way, you may ask, why do they keep calling it a sea instead of a lake? And the answer is there was no Hebrew word for lake. And that's why it's called the Sea of Galilee and even in the New Testament. He was walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. Now think about this just for a moment. Here are these disciples and they're out here and the winds are blowing and they're cascading down on them and they are troubled. I mean, they're rowing. And these are people who really know the lake, right? They know this fresh water. This is where they make their living. They are very familiar with this lake. And they're doing everything they can and the waves are coming up and into the boat. Probably some of them are bailing. And, and so they're troubled by that. Then they saw something they had never seen before. Whether it was a lightning flash or the dawn, the emerging light of the dawn, they saw someone walking on the water to come to them. Whoa, wouldn't you and I be terrified in such a situation? Certainly we would. But the person who is walking toward them is actually their savior. The one who is there is actually their deliverer. Yet they were terrified They were terrified when they began to recognize what was happening in this situation. They had never seen anything like this ever before. Terrified as they were, they didn't know that it was Jesus Christ actually reintroducing himself to them. You see, that's really what the Gospels are all about. They're about revealing or unveiling the glory of Jesus Christ, just as surely as the book of the Revelation is in that series. They are unveiling Christ. This is exactly what's happening here. They are beginning to recognize that he is the God of the storms as well. So in your personal storm, this is what's going to happen to you. Jesus is going to come to you in your storm. Whatever it is, you could be lying on your deathbed. You could be looking at your checkbook. You could be being denounced by people. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could be happening to you in this society. Here's what you need to know. Jesus will come near to you. He will draw near to you in the storm. But you know what the problem is? You may not recognize him. (laughs) It may terrify you that he comes to you in that way and you will say, I... This is so strange and so terrifying, and yet it's actually the Lord himself demonstrating his glory to you in a way that you never saw before. Fear and astonishment, absolutely. But remember that Jesus will come to you in the storm. Well, how does that solve the problem that they were crying out in fear? I love this. Look Look at verse 27. But straightway or immediately... Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke unto them. And what did he say? He said, be of good cheer. That's another way of saying, 
Be of good courage. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Dear friends, can there be any more comforting words in all of the scripture when you are in the midst of your storms? Can there be any more encouraging words than this? Jesus saying to us, be of good courage. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. That immediately presents every one of those disciples in the boat and it presents every one of us with a choice. Are we going to go on in fear? Are we going to go on in faith? The spirit of fear can be rampant. It can be terrifying. That's what they were. They were terrified. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. Whoever saw anything like that ever before. But then Jesus spoke. Does Jesus speak to you? God has spoken to me in the most recent Bible readings in the most powerful ways. I can demonstrate to you. I can show you what he has shown me about my circumstances in the storms that we all go through and we are going through now, how God speaks to you in your storm. Do you understand then how absolutely essential it is to be reading your Bible, to be going back and looking at the very word of God and finding out what does God say? And you will find out that the very situations you are facing are the very ones that are addressed in the word of God. This is what gives people courage. This is what gives them stamina and fortitude to be able to face whatever comes because they are trusting in the very word of God. Jesus spoke. He did not let them wriggle and wrestle with their terror. Straightway or immediately, he said, be of good cheer, take courage, it is I, be not afraid. So no matter what, whether it is that physical storm that you're going through right now in your physical body or a financial storm or a family storm, Jesus will speak to you in the storm. This is exactly why Isaac Watts wrote, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. And don't miss this. Jesus is still speaking today. He is speaking to you through the word of God. Would you open your Bible and listen to what he is actually saying to you? Now, Peter is quite the character, is he not? Peter, in a lot of different ways, we recognize ourselves in Peter. So here they are, and Peter is so thrilled that it's the Lord Look what Peter says in verses 28 through 30. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou. So there might be just a little question in Peter's mind. After all, Jesus is reintroducing himself in a way that they've never seen before. He said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to thee on the water. And Jesus said, come. Jesus said, come. In the midst of a storm, in the midst of that boat, Peter would much rather leave the safety, quote unquote, of the boat 
to be in the arms of Jesus. Isn't that the way it is for all of us, folks? Wouldn't you rather draw near to the Lord and be in the arms of Jesus? Jesus said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water. Every other time that Peter, the businessman and the fisherman, had left the boat and he stepped onto the water, what happened? Kerplunk. Down to the bottom, down to the deep. This time he walked on water. This is the experience. The experience of trusting the Lord by faith and resting in him. It will feel to you as if you are walking on water. It will feel to you at times like, how how is this even happening? And before long, you begin to sing to yourself, standing on the promises. And and you begin to recognize, wow, look at at what the Lord's doing by his power. And, And you suddenly realize how he reverses that financial problem or that physical problem or that family problem, whatever else it is. And the whole time you were trying to focus on Jesus and it's like walking on water. So what do we know? What do we learn here? Well, this is the fifth reminder. Remember that Jesus will allow you to go to him in the storm. Isn't that comforting? Isn't it comforting that he is not only our great high priest who is interceding for us even now, we can go to him. What do we learn from James? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's the confidence. That's that's what we know. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11? He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavily laden. Is your storm today causing you to labor and be heavily laden? And you wonder, whoa, how is this ever going to end? Here's what Jesus said. Come unto me, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Peter had something to learn here, though, didn't he? He stepped out onto the water. Wow. (laughs) I still think, what would that be like? Maybe in heaven we get replays, and we'll kind of understand, you know, more about how this works. But what was the problem? Well, it says that Peter took his eyes off the Lord and began to begin basically to ask himself, what am I doing? (laughs) He's He's walking on the water to go to Jesus, and then he thinks, Whoa, what what in the world am I doing here? In Proverbs 3, it talks about not leaning to your own understanding. That's exactly what Peter's doing here. He suddenly suddenly begins to realize, I've never done anything like this before. Takes his eyes off the Lord, and what happens? He falls beneath the waves. Dear friends, the great need then is not only to take that one small step out of the boat, it is to abide It is to continue to trust. It is to continue to rest in him and know that he will bring us forth. So what does he do? Well, Peter's victorious faith rose to the surface probably before his body did. As he was coming up out of the waves, he thought there is only one chance here. By the way, this is life's most wonderful conclusion. Here it is. Jesus is the only hope. Have you come to life's most wonderful conclusion that Jesus is the only hope? That's what Peter did. And so what did he do? He came up out of those waves and said, Lord, save me. Did Jesus step back and fold his arms and let him struggle? No, no. 
immediately he takes him by the hand. Immediately, the scripture tells you in verse 31, he stretched out his hand. Here's what you need to know, though. In your storm, you can go to Jesus. When was the last time you got down on your face before the Lord and cried out to the Lord? When was the last time you just got away from everybody else and you just got down and you said, Lord, I have to have answers here. Lord, you've got to help me. And saw that that's exactly what he did. You were able to go to the Lord. And now the only remaining question is, if you will abide, if you will continue, if you will call out to the Lord and continue doing so. And this in verse 31 brings us to the sixth reminder. Look what Jesus did in verse 31 immediately. He didn't step, he didn't step back and fold his arms and say, what's wrong with you? I told you so. Immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith. That was what the problem was. You and your little faith, wherefore did you doubt? I think it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said about this text that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not scold the doubter until he had saved the sinker. He immediately takes him by the hand and says, Peter, where's your faith? Now remember, Jesus is ultimately, after his resurrection, he's going to heaven. He's going to ascend from the Mount of Olives. He's going up. How's Peter going to walk through the storms that he is going to face later? And Jesus is telling him, it's your faith. It's your trust. Will you trust in the Lord? Yes, you have the security of being sent. And yes, you know that the Lord is going to come to you. He's going to speak to you. He, he deserves and needs, and you ought to have, ought to have your, his complete, he ought to have your complete trust. That's the sixth reminder. Remember that Jesus must have your complete trust in the storm. If Peter had not completely trusted in the Lord, he would, have even, he, would, he would have tried to do it his own way. Tread water in the middle of this violent storm would never have worked until ultimately he came and said, okay, Lord, I trust you, I rest in you, and be like Joseph who said, it was not you who sent me into this, but God. And that really brings us to the conclusion in verses 32 and 33. When they were coming to the ship, it says, the wind ceased. Let that sink in just for a moment, what that was like. When they, Jesus and Peter, stepped into the boat, the wind stopped. Can you imagine the other disciples going, whoa, what happened there? Wow. Ever seen anything like that before? They knew exactly what to do because it says, then those who were in the ship came and worshiped him saying, of a truth, thou art the son of God. See, they got the point. And this is the very reason Matthew is recording this for all of us to know we are dealing with the very son of God. Remember that Jesus will teach you to worship him in the storm more than one time as I have stood by a hospital bed in Blanchard Valley Hospital and Toledo hospitals and, and all, people said, pastor, why is this happening to me? And one of the answers that I find myself coming back to is this, that Jesus Christ went through all of this, all of the torture of his physical body, dying on the cross for our sins and being buried and rising again so that we by faith could trust him to save us for all eternity. 
that whatever it is that we are going through, Jesus was in all points tested just as we are. Isn't it wonderful to know you have a trailblazer that way? He was tempted in all points, tested in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And that's what causes us to just say, well, glory to God, I want to worship the Lord. And that's exactly what the disciples did, and that's exactly what you and I ought to do. So when you go through these storms, and many of you have told me over these past several years of things you have gone through, know this, Jesus is with you in the storm. He is praying for you in the storm. He'll speak to you in the storm. You can go to him in your storm. He will teach you to completely trust him. But life's most wonderful conclusion is Jesus is the only hope. And he will teach you to worship him in new and wonderful ways. Shall we bow our heads together? Lord, how we praise you today for the glory of God as revealed in the word of God. And Lord, I'm crying out to you today for those here who may have never trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Would you help them to see that he is the God of the storm, that he is the one who will meet their deepest needs, and that he is ready, he is available, he is praying even now, he is interceding, he is longing to hear from each one of us, and he will rescue us and deliver us in our storms. Lord, help us, we pray to honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.